This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The combination of Donald Trump as the president and Bill Barr as the head of the Justice Department, this is a combination befitting a banana republic. And you got to scratch your head pretty hard and wonder how in the hell we got here. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the law, the courts, and the rule of law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I write about some of that for Slate, and this week has been mm, just about as rock'em sock'em as it gets in my world. We've heard from whistleblowers, inspectors general, we've heard from federal appellate courts, and yes, we heard from the journalist who brought down Richard Nixon himself about malfeasance in the Trump administration. Imagine, fires are raging on the West Coast. We're thinking of you, take care. Coronavirus continues to ravage parts of this country. We're thinking of you, take care. The president has doubts about his generals uh, and didn't tell us the truth about COVID. And if your children are anything like mine, they are at quote-unquote school in ways that exhaust them and me in just about equal measure. And oh, God bless you, teachers and school people and school administrators. You are deserving of medals. Now, later on in the show, Slate Plus members are going to get to hear our bonus check-in with Mark Joseph Stern, my confederate in covering the courts, to talk about Donald Trump's very, very long shortlist of Supreme Court candidates. If you're not a Slate Plus member, please consider checking it out. Members get access to ad-free versions of all of Slate's network of amazing shows, plus bonus content, and Slate Plus members provide vital support for the journalism work we do here at the magazine, work that we cannot do without your support. You can find more info at slate.com slash amicus plus, and thank you. The events of this week bring us back to the United States Justice Department, and notably to one William Barr, the attorney general, who has very ably repurposed his DOJ to perform functions once undertaken by Michael Cohen, which is to say that Bill Barr is now formally in the role of Donald Trump's booster, fixer, issuer of threats, and all-purpose legal roto-rooter. This past week featured continued threats from the Justice Department of criminal sanctions that are about to be levied any minute now on Donald Trump's political enemies as well as the gobsmacking motion to have the department take over a state defamation lawsuit from E. Jean Carroll. She's a journalist who accused Donald Trump of raping her in the 1990s. Bill Barr has also continued to press the president's patently false talking points about all the dangers of voting by mail, describing it as, quote, playing with fire and falsely claiming that the Justice Department has indicted someone in Texas for collecting 1,700 ballots and altering them all to vote fraudulently. Uh, that never happened. 
We have talked before on this show about the weaponization of the machinery of justice and how really dangerous that can be. But with this week's developments and the election impending, I really wanted to talk to somebody who could make that which seems like an abstraction at times just very concrete and immediate and real. And for me, that person really is Donald B. Ayer. He served as United States Attorney and Principal Deputy Solicitor General in the Reagan administration, and then as Deputy Attorney General under George H.W. Bush. Indeed, it was Ayer who turned over the keys to the DOJ to one Bill Barr, and he has been a vocal critic of what Barr has brought at DOJ, calling in the Atlantic this past winter for Barr to step down. Last month, he joined a group of one-time Republican presidential appointees who served as senior ethics or Justice Department aides to endorse Joe Biden for president out of their concern for the legitimacy of the Department of Justice. I wanted to talk to him about what recent events portend for the future of the possibility of an independent Justice Department and also about the next four years. And I wanted to talk to him about what it all portends for the election itself. So it is a great pleasure, Donald Ayer, to welcome you to Amicus. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. I think I wanted to start with this abstraction, if I may, uh, which is just the very notion that there can even be an independent, neutral Department of Justice. I know that you have thought harder than almost anybody about post-Watergate reforms, about Edward Levy, what he tried to do, and the changes that were put into place to at least try to fix the ideal of an independent DOJ. And I feel like I want you to respond to what the cynic is going to say, which is, come on, it was only ever an ideal, and the DOJ is always politicized, and Hillary Clinton's Justice Department would have served her priorities and her ends just as much as Donald Trump's, and look, they all serve at the pleasure of the president, so none of this is different, and none of this is troubling. Well, I think, you know, I think you can talk with almost anybody who has worked in the department, you know, in the last literally 45 years um, and see the glow on their face when they talk about their time there and the idealistic sense they have of what they were doing. Um, A lot of, of what is being undermined radically now is in the nature of attitudes and norms. Certainly, there are lots of practices that are being violated. But the idea that what we aspire to in the Department of Justice is a system in which, you know, literally, as Edward Levy put it, in his words, no man is above the law, uh, and and the law must be applied in an even-handed way that people will trust. And in, in fact, that, that has not been perfect, but it's been pretty darn good for 45 years. And what's gone on in the last 18 months and to a lesser degree before that under, under Sessions uh, is a gross undermining of that. And, and, you know, there's this long list of things that, that Bill Barr has done, which, which you're well familiar with, and I think your audience is. We can certainly go through them. And it's getting worse and worse. And the bottom line right now is that this spring, in countless ways, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Bill Barr has made his office and the and the Department of Justice tools of the president's reelection campaign. Well, let's start with, I think, one of the things that you really honed in on in your Atlantic piece from last February was 
Barr's willingness to intervene in cases, cases, I think at the time, what was setting you off was Michael Flynn, Roger Stone, what you called 11th hour intercessions to benefit the president's associates. And let's start there, because I think the leap from even Roger Stone and Michael Flynn to what happened with E. Jean Carroll this week is noteworthy. But let's start with Flynn and Stone, maybe. Yeah, well, I mean, those are those are two examples where best anyone can tell the president obviously had personal associates who he had he had opinions. He tweeted his opinions about how they were being treated by his own Justice Department. And he really believes in this vision that Barr has told him is his constitutional right to be all powerful and direct what goes on in the Justice Department. That's what Barr has told him. That's what Barr has written. And so he darn well wanted to treat these guys, Stone and Flynn, better than they were being treated. So Bill Barr arranges a series of acts, including getting rid of a U.S. attorney uh, and substituting a crony of his in order to change all of that in the various ways that's been done. One, making a lighter sentencing recommendation for Stone and, and the other making a motion to dismiss entirely the case of Flynn, who had twice pled guilty. And that's still going forward and pending, you know, and then ultimately the president commuted the sentence because he didn't want Stone to have any sentence. So so those are two incredible acts simply doing the president's bidding because the president wants it done. A lot of the other things like Barr's lying flat out about the findings of the Mueller report with regard to obstruction, you know, were things that were really designed to protect the president, not just whims that he had about things, wanting things to be done in a certain way, but, but you know, things that protected him because, gosh, it isn't good if people know that the president did clearly obstruct justice as he, in fact, did, you know, and others of the things, and these are the ones that I've really gotten distressed about lately, are simply acts, and there are many of them, to advance the president's prospects of reelection. And Barr is now full-time appealing to the base in a bunch of different ways and doing what he can, including violence in our cities to create the narrative and, and you know, create videos for the narrative that Trump is telling about America being a country under siege. It goes on and on and on, and it just gets worse and worse. Let's just hone in on one thing that you mentioned briefly, but I'm not sure all listeners fully understand the implications, and that is these U.S. attorneys. So you're thinking of Jesse Liu, you're thinking of Jeffrey Berman in the Southern District of New York. And these are folks, again, at some level, serve at the pleasure of the president, not the first time U.S. attorneys have been shuffled around. First of all, I think there is the fact that Bill Barr straight up lied about at least the Berman uh, removal and suggested that Berman was leaving on his own steam when, in fact, he was just canned. But can you talk a little bit for folks who don't know the intricacies of, again, that line between serving at the pleasure of the president and being released from your job because you're handling sensitive cases that inflect on the president? Sure. Um, so the U.S. attorneys, uh, U.S. attorney is maybe the best job anybody can have in government if, if what they want to do is represent the United States in court. And there are 93 U.S. attorneys around the country. They're presidential appointments. They're confirmed by the Senate. Uh, and yes, you can be removed by the president. The tradition and the norm is that U.S. attorneys are appointed. They do get reviewed by the Senate. 
They have some stature and standing and their pledge above all else in my lifetime has been act independently and fairly and do everything you can to let the public know that you're being fair. What these folks have done is convert or try to convert the U.S. attorney position and in many, many instances around the country to nothing more than an operational arm of what Bill Barr wants to get done in order to accomplish his objectives to advance Donald Trump's interest and his own interest in an autocratic government. And so he has, you know, Jesse Liu, you mentioned uh, U.S. attorney in Washington, D.C., I think a very fine person who I've spoken with, uh, nominated by Trump, confirmed by the Senate, and was going forward in ordinary course with the, with the prosecutions in the D.C. office of Flynn and Stone. And then in the latter part of last year, a series of events occurred, which I'll make short, but essentially she was offered a job, a presidential appointment in the Treasury Department, a law enforcement-related job, and she was essentially convinced to leave her position and move over there, and then they withdrew the nomination of her for that presidential appointment in the Treasury Department, and Barr insisted that she leave early in the year, and ultimately what happened was he sent his crony, uh, and I say that because Fox News describes him as Barr's right-hand man, Tim Shea, gets sent over there as an acting U.S. attorney, and he then does the dirty work. He then changes the position in the Flynn and the Stone case. More generally, Barr has been using trying to use and, and effectively using the U.S. attorney slots as places to put his trusted associates who will do his bidding. Uh, and he's using acting positions a lot. This whole government is using acting positions to put people of low stature and perhaps low integrity in many cases into jobs where they ought to be presidential appointments, people confirmed by the Senate, people have a, who have a respected background, and instead, what you've got are people who are, in some cases, just hacks who have been put there. Uh, and if they don't do what they're told, they'll just be told to leave because they haven't been confirmed. They have no stature. And that's the game they're playing. And it's being played in lots of different ways and not only with U.S. attorneys, but with lots of other jobs in the Justice Department. And I think you make such an important point, which is, you know, I started by saying the two things that Barr stands accused of is both weaponizing DOJ to go after Donald Trump's imagined enemies and using it to exculpate his friends. And you've just described a pretty systematic use of the U.S. attorneys themselves to effectuate those outcomes. So whether it's sidelining Jeffrey Berman or Jesse Liu uh, to make sure that certain prosecutions don't go forward, or whether it's using kind of conscripting different U.S. attorneys to do investigations into whatever unmasking is, whatever that claim is, uh, the Durham report, the John Durham report that's looking at the origins of the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. So both of those, that sort of pincer move of going after Donald Trump's uh, enemies using, for instance, the Durham investigation, continuing to dangle that as any minute now, Peter Strzok, any minute now, Jim Comey, you're going to, you know, you 
frog marched in front of the cameras with cuffs on. And also, as you're saying, uh, having U.S. attorneys that are trying to oversee longstanding, legitimate criminal investigations sidelined. That's what you're describing. That's exactly right. And, you know, there, there, there are many examples of that. And there, there are a number of U.S. attorneys, uh, you know, from around the country that, that Bill Barr has called in to play these different roles. Somebody is, I don't know if it's a U.S. attorney, somebody is doing intake with regard to material from Rudy Giuliani. Um, uh, you know, uh, somebody came in and, and second-guessed uh, allegedly l- reviewed the files in the Flynn and Stone cases and said, oh, no, that's not the way we should do it. We should change it. Um, th- there's a whole lot of these situations where people are being used, you know, and that's that's part of a bigger picture, which is really, really critical to the way the norms and ideals of the department have been undermined. And that is the respect for the career staff of lawyers at the Department of Justice is at an all-time low, certainly in my lifetime, certainly since the reforms that Edward Levy put in place. You know, there's a, there's a system, it's a system that involves a role, certainly, for political appointees. This is not one where the department runs as a perpetual motion machine by the career people and the political people have no say. No, they're an integral part of the review process, but it's a normal standard process and cases go forward and there's a normal way. I was a U.S. attorney in Sacramento and I had to approve all the indictments. Did I approve every indictment? No, Uh, but it's a regular process. And the one thing everybody's conscious of is that you would never let the whiff of political or personal influence have any part in anything. Well, these people have made political influence and personal preference an integral part of decision-making in numerous cases. Um, and the, the, one of the things that's resulted, it's, it's a very important thing, but it's only one of many, is that the, just the absolute disastrous state of morale in the department, and we need a restoration of both of the procedures and of the morale and to get it back on the track that it was on before. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to our conversation with Donald B. Ayer. He's former United States Attorney and Principal Deputy Solicitor General in the Reagan administration and Deputy Attorney General under George H.W. Bush, now a staunch critic of both the Trump administration, the Justice Department, and one William Barr. So so let's talk a little bit about the John Durham investigation. Uh, I think Mark Meadows, the uh, Chief of Staff, 
cited the John Durham report. He told Fox Business News this week. I can tell you additional documents that I've been able to review uh, say that uh, a number of the players, the Peter Strucks, the Andy McCabe's, the James Comey's, and even others in the administration previously uh, are in real trouble because of their willingness to participate in an unlawful act. And I use the word unlawful at best. uh, It broke all kinds of protocols. And at worst, uh, people should go to jail, as I've mentioned previously. Put aside whether Mark Meadows was saying that he was seeing new documents, but Regardless of the substance of these claims, the Durham probe continues to be dangled as this October surprise catnip, Donald. Like, you've written about this. You've testified about this. Using a criminal probe, I think you described in your testimony in June, as fodder for the president's campaign propaganda mill. And I'm not sure that listeners understand. I mean, you've talked about the effect on morale, but understand the implications of Bill Barr and the Justice Department engaging in a criminal probe that keeps being held out as any minute now folks are going to jail in really only in an effort to goose Donald Trump's electoral fortunes. That's right. And, and you know, this is this is one where the rot in what he did, I think, goes back to the very beginning, because, you know, back in the early part of last year, uh, Inspector General Michael Horowitz of the Justice Department had been working for many months on an investigation of, of the, of the FBI, uh, crossfire hurricane investigation of Russian interference in our election, including the parts where they were looking at the conduct of Trump, uh, uh, campaign people, many of whom, well over a dozen of whom had contacts with Russians. And he came up with a report late in last year. Well, long before he finished his work, Bill Barr created what I have to describe as his own personal investigation. And he commissioned this fellow, John Durham, the U.S. attorney in Connecticut, to be his agent to do it. But he worked personally with him. He flew various places around the world to meet with people with Durham uh, and to try to develop evidence on it. And that's been going forward. And the really most blatant outrage. Number one, my personal view is there's probably no reason at all that that investigation ever had any business being started. But leaving that aside, um, there's the fact that Bill Barr began talking about it and about what he, you know, indicated he knew to be the facts long before it ever got finished. Of course, it isn't finished yet. So that's the easy thing to say. He started talking last year about the FBI spying, and that was his word, on on the president's campaign. He said that repeatedly, and he said it over and over again for many, many months. And and the the, the sort of drumbeat and the and the volubility of his comments and the emotional content of his comments has just gotten nothing but worse. Back in April, uh, and this is of course he he where does he go? He goes to Fox News. Uh, you know, in April, I think on the ninth, he talks with Laura Ingram. Uh, and I think I've got this right. And he, and at that point, he describes what the FBI did in that investigation as one of the greatest travesties in American history. And similar language has been used by him in numerous interviews ever since. Well, the problem with this on a common sense level is that, you know, this is something the government could do to anybody. 
Uh, you know, if the government, you know, starts saying terrible things about people, whether they're true or not, uh, and they haven't ever finished an investigation and they haven't ever brought charges, then we're all in big trouble. Uh, all of us who are speaking out now, uh, you know, got to wonder what's going to happen if Trump gets reelected, um, because they can make up any BS they want and start talking about it. And so Barr has been doing this repeatedly. Now, it happens that that particular behavior is a flat-out violation of, an, of, a, of a rule in the Department of Justice manual. It's Rule 1-7.400, and it says that, that the, the, the department you know, generally does not comment either on the existence of an investigation or certainly of anything about what's being found. And Barr has just flagrantly and repeatedly violated that. Now, these comments by Mark Meadows are really a new low because now you've got somebody outside the Justice Department who acts like he has inside information about what is being found in this investigation. And he from the White House is giving running commentary on it and predicting what's going to happen. And you're entirely right. This is all about creating a campaign narrative. It's all about telling people that, boy, we've got the goods and something's going to happen. We hope it'll be before the election, but this is really outrageous. So this is really one of the worst. I, I would have said, you know, a month and a half ago, I would have said it was the worst. But some things have happened since that I think you could argue are even worse than this. And, and I'm loath, I really am loath to cite to internal DOJ norms, because I think you've already said it's the norms that are being eaten up from within. But correct me if I'm wrong, there is, I think it's not an affirmative rule, but certainly a DOJ policy that says that you don't release this kind of information uh, that would sway an election 60 to 90 days before election day. I gather that's not an enforceable rule, but we are within either 60 or 90 days, however you count it. Uh, the fact that Barr, I guess I'm just looking at this quote where Bill Barr told talk radio host Buck Sexton on August 12th, we're not going to do anything for the purpose of affecting the election, but we're trying to get some things done before the election, waka waka. So he's absolutely flying right into the face of at least the norm that you don't go releasing major investigations that are going to sway the election within that harbor. You know, it's like a lot of things about the Justice Department, and I guess maybe other parts of the government, too, to a degree. But, uh, uh, you know, this elaborate, extensive set of reforms that, that Attorney General Levy put in place in the 70s, you know, they were a reaction to events in Watergate that, you know, there aren't that many of us around who really remember them and lived through them. I lived through them while I was in law school, so they made quite an impression on me. Um, but the country really came to distrust. We had two attorney generals who were, in, who were convicted of crimes. We had a whole lot of other people convicted of crimes. And, and basically, it was for abusing government power. And Attorney General Levy did a whole lot of things. And uh, many of them were in the form of statutes like the original IG Act and lo lots and lots of other things. But, but some of the most important things were what's in your heart and an attitudinal sense of what is our mission. And what he did was he created a set of convictions and a set of, of, of sort of, I call them norms, it's repetitive, but uh, essentially guidelines. And the guideline was you better bend over backwards 
to make sure people understand you are being fair. Think about how people are going to look at what you are doing and do what you need to do to be fair. And this election policy is like is one of those. You know, it's a judgment call, but it's one that everybody has honored. And the thing about it is there will be trust in the way that's implemented when there's belief that the people in charge are actually acting in good faith and they're trying their best. And will they do it perfectly? And do you make the judgments in the same way every time? No, maybe maybe it's not. Maybe, maybe some of these things are fuzzy. But the problem we have now is that the, the fox is guarding the hen house. We have people in power who I have no hesitation saying are acting in bad faith. They are not trustworthy. Uh, the combination of Donald Trump as the president and Bill Barr um, as the head of the Justice Department, and I would say, frankly, the second most powerful person in the country, this this is a this is a combination befitting a banana republic, and you got to scratch your head pretty hard and wonder how in the hell we got here, uh, because this is not a place we want to be any longer. I want to give you a minute to comment on the DOJ stepping in on Tuesday into this state defamation case that was brought by Eugene Carroll. Uh, again, this is at the 11th hour. Uh, this case has been going on since November of 2019. Uh, we were literally at discovery being due in this state defamation case. And out of the blue, under the Federal Tort Claims Act, we have the Justice Department filing motions to uh, remove the case to federal court and to make the United States the defendant. And now taxpayer dollars will go to have DOJ attorneys defend Donald Trump. And the most shocking component, I think you and I agree, is the allegation that what Donald Trump said about E. Jean Carroll when he dismissed her as not his type uh, and said that she was making it all up to publish a book, that was somehow under the course of his employment as president. I, I think the media described this as, quote, surprising. I, I described it as, um, where do you put this in your canon of things to be worried about? Well, I think it's it's something to be worried about because it is so transparently invalid as an action. When I when I was in the Solicitor General's office, one of the areas I had special responsibility for was defense of government of lawsuits against the government. And and in these Federal Tort Claims Act cases, which is a statute that essentially says that that when a federal employee takes action within the scope of his employment. Um, then that becomes an action against the United States and it, and they take it over and the FTCA has a whole variety of rules and also immunities essentially that kick in. So you can't get money from the government for a variety of things. One of the interesting points here is that you can't get money from the government for defamation, uh, under it. So of course this, this lawsuit is going to disappear. If it goes forward, but the real outrage is the one that you've highlighted and your attitude about it, I think is, is right on target. And that is, is the idea that he was acting within the scope of his employment when he made allegedly slanderous comments about a woman who said that she'd been raped by him. 
Um, I mean, that's, that is just off the page ridiculous. You know, one of the things that goes on in every one of these Federal Tort Claims Act cases is that you look at the facts of what went on and you say, was this employee working within the scope of his employment? Is this part of his duties as a federal employee? Well, this obviously, obviously, obviously is not. You know, a good example of it is a mail, a mail carrier who's driving a mail truck and he, and there's an auto accident and he's on his route and da, 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 da. And he's in the scope of his employment if he's driving on his route, even if he was negligent. But if he, if he got drunk and took his truck and went partying at the beach, uh, in it, he's not within the scope of his employment. Well, that's what we're talking about here. And, you know, one, one little dimension of this from a legal setting is that this is actually part and parcel in a way of Barr's aggrandized view of the president. You know, he says, you know, he said in his 2018 memo when he was applying to be attorney general that the president is the executive branch. And apparently this is a corollary of that in his mind, which is that therefore everything the president does is within his scope of employment. So just think about that for a minute. You know, as in the famous quote, you know, apparently, uh, you know, I don't know, but maybe Barr would say if the president shot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue um, because he's president, that would be within the scope of his employment. That's about what this amounts to. So it's utterly ridiculous. And what it really shows, I think, and this is this is why I'm very worried about what's coming up. What it shows is how far Bill Barr is willing to go to please Donald Trump. Donald Trump doesn't like this lawsuit. Apparently, it was moving forward and they couldn't delay it. So something had to be done. Well, if Bill Barr wants to accomplish his mission of making the president an autocrat, he can't do it before November. So he needs another term and another chance to do it. He's got to get Donald Trump elected and he's got to keep Donald Trump happy. As Trump said a while ago, um, you could be a great attorney general or you could be just another guy. Well, if he doesn't do what Donald Trump tells him to do in some of these areas, he's going to be just another guy, and he doesn't want that. I think I remember that line from some episode of The Apprentice. Right? It's such a it's such a made for TV caution. I I, I do think you're reacting to the same thing I am in the Eugene Carroll scenario, which is it is without a doubt a kind of claim that. Sounds in the key of l'état c'est moi, right? The the president and and the entire machinery of the presidency and the president in his individual capacity, including acts committed before he was president. All of that is one and the same. And I guess it's worth at least flagging as a legal matter that the opposite claims are made when Donald Trump wants to, for instance, use his Twitter uh, feed to keep certain people out. Those are not presidential acts. So the irony isn't simply that we now have Bill Barr and the Justice Department fully embracing this King George view of the presidency, but at the same time, in other contexts, they continue to say that when Donald Trump does something on Twitter, uh, that's not a presidential act, uh, that a lot of the things that Donald Trump does that would appear to be presidential acts are not. So it, it's, it's the, the hubris in saying everything is a presidential act, except for the stuff that we think 
isn't. Uh, you did just say something I want to come back to. It's important. You've known Bill Barr for a long time. And I think you've said, and I think it is absolutely descriptively correct, that he took this job because there are things he wants to get done, that he has a fully realized worldview, uh, both in terms, as you've just said, of his view of the unitary executive, presidential power, you know, an unbounded presidency. Uh, that's part of it. There is another part of his worldview, which I think is a quasi-religious worldview. And I wondered if you'd be willing to talk about that a little. Yeah. Um, I've spent some time lately reading some of the things he has written. You know, he's a, he is a, a, a strong believing Catholic, and that's obviously a personal thing for him. And I, I don't have any comment on that, obviously. Um, but one of the things that's apparent when you do, when you read his various writings on the subject of executive power, and, and then you read, you know, there are several things, an article that he wrote back in the nineties when he was just finished or it was finishing up as attorney general. And then, of course, recently there's the speech he gave at Notre Dame about religion and the narrative he tells there for the country relating to religious belief is very similar and very parallel to his sense with regard to executive power. On executive power, he concocts a very wrong view that the founders actually intended up the president to be a virtual autocrat. Never mind what you learned in uh, you know eighth grade or high school about separation of powers and all of these ways that the different branches check each other, the checks and balances and all of that. Bill Barr's view is that the founders intended a very strong executive who would be essentially immune from a whole variety of things and that that reality was the reality in our country for the first, you know, almost 200 years. Well, that's just utter hogwash. And we could go into it, but I, I won't take the time right now. But the key point is that in the 60s, or maybe the 70s, certainly accelerating, as he said at one point, accelerating after Watergate, that all just went down the drain. And we started attacking the, the executive in various ways. This is basically backwards. The power of the president has has gone into its ascendancy in the last 50 years. But but that's his view on that. And his personal role that he's assigned himself is to restore that autocratic vision of the president. Well, the same thing on parallel way is true of his views on religion. He sees the founders as people who were very concerned that Americans would remain a pious country of churchgoers whose strict religious moral views would govern them. And I guess he thinks that was the dominant you know, story in our country, even though you know, everyone else knows that our country was essentially created as a result of the rationalism, the enlightenment, the rise of empiricism and understanding of the world as a real physical place that had rules of, of its own. But Barr sees the founders as focused overwhelmingly on, on piety and adherence to traditional Christian, especially morals. And again, on a parallel with his views on, on, the, on autocracy, gosh, golly gee, that went to hell in a handbasket starting in the 60s with all the things that happened in the 60s and things that have happened since. And so, again, his role that he sees for himself is to restore that 
And, you know, a good microcosm of that, if you want to just think of one image, is Bill Barr ordering, you know, federal law enforcement people into Lafayette Park to clear out Lafayette Park so the president, probably the most vulgar, irreligious national leader, we I, I say probably, I have no doubt, the most vulgar, irreligious national leader we have ever had, so he could stride across Lafayette Park with a Bible in his hand and wave it at the camera in front of St. John's Church. So Barr has got this role for himself as a restorer of these worlds that never were. And essentially, the only way he can perform that mission is by keeping Donald Trump happy. So that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing him do whatever it takes to get Trump reelected, and to keep Trump thinking that Barr is the guy who he needs to help him accomplish all this. And I want to be very clear about this, because I think you and I share a, a, a sort of inherent trepidation about in any way maligning anyone's religious motives. But I think it's very, very clear that when Barr goes to Notre Dame and talks about secularists and talks about just the viciousness of anti-religious fervor in this country. And he, you know, I think you've referenced, you know, he had written a 1995 article for Catholic Lawyer, which is feels like the blueprint for what he's saying now, where he talked about this militant secular age and all the ways in which uh, if the vicious secularists had their ways, there would be vile religious persecution, it, it almost feels as though he's describing an America that is the religious analog to the smoldering ash heaps in the streets that he's describing in his law and order version of America, that he's constructing this all-out war on religious liberty that is not really in evidence, much the same way that I think he and Donald Trump keep wanting to talk about looting and anarchy and rioting on the streets and the need for the law to come down like a hammer. It, it's a almost a, a fantasy world of chaos in both instances that I, I just don't see. Well, no, I, I, I think you're right. And I, you know, these are views that Barr has held for more than 30 years. He didn't make up either his desire to restore autocracy in the presidency or his belief that traditional uh, Christian pious faith needed to be restored in America. He did not make that up as a rationale for going to work for Donald Trump. He's believed this a very long time. In a way, it's a, it's a sort of horrendous match made in heaven that these themes that are what he genuinely apparently believes in, they're convictions he's had. And for more than 30 years, I think in his own mind, he has assigned, it's like Don Quixote, he's assigned himself the role uh, of rescuing America from these things. And, and that's really what we're seeing now. And so, yes, I mean, the, the, the imagery that he uses is very apocalyptic. Um, it absolutely is. And, you know, you're right. I mean, he talks about, you know, one of the worst things I've ever heard him say was a series of things he said in an interview with Mark Levin in August, where he goes on and on about militant secularists. He says the left wants power because that is essentially their state of grace and their secular religion. They want to run people's lives so they can design utopia for all of us. 
You know, it's it's just really a sort of a cosmic vision of of you know morality at risk at the barricades. And Bill Barr, you know, in service of you know Donald Trump, is the only one who can fix it. Let's return to our conversation with Donald B. Ayer, a former Republican appointee to the Department of Justice under both Reagan and George H.W. Bush. He's been sounding the alarm about the current administration and the current attorney general's goals and motives at the DOJ. I have to ask you this just pointedly because I think you've said it elliptically, but I want you to say it, say it straight on. You're describing a devil's bargain in which Donald Trump doesn't really need Bill Barr, but Bill Barr really needs Donald Trump because Bill Barr, unlike Donald Trump, who is just a series of whims and caprices and (laughs) feelings, Bill Barr has a plan. He has a programmatic vision and he needs Donald Trump in order to build the America he's been dreaming about for decades. And what happens as a consequence, I think is what you're saying is that Donald Trump says crazy stuff and Bill Barr has to repeat it. Bill Barr has to keep saying even things that he knows to be bananas, like the Obama administration spied on Donald Trump or like 1,700 votes were stolen in Texas and we prosecuted a guy for that. And so really, in a sense... The more bananas Donald Trump is, the more Bill Barr has to contort himself in order to just shore up Donald Trump's crazy worldview. That's what you're saying, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would I would say that's exactly right. And 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 the crazier that worldview gets. Well, it's been crazy for a long time. It's gotten somewhat crazier as we've gone along. But the urgency of that worldview has become ever greater as we approach the election. That, if, if Trump gets reelected, it's going to be by this sort of presentation of a, of a totally unreal worldview of, you know, you know, demons at the gate and the need to defend our civilization and, and all of that sort of stuff. And so, so Barr, yes, you're right. I mean, and Barr has, you know, in his own mind recognizes that his game is over. If Trump doesn't get reelected, this personal mission of redemption for America, which I think he truly thinks he's he's on and he, and he thinks it's right, probably as best I can figure, um, that is over if Trump doesn't get reelected. So he not only is mouthing the words to make Trump contented, but but he is doing this because he needs to get Trump reelected. And this is the strategy. So he spews garbage. But the worst part than that, even uh, hard to think of something worse than that. But the worst part than that is that he's doing things too. He's doing things as necessary too. So you have all these troops all over the country, right? In various cities. Um, we got to have a, a, a video complement to the theme of, of unrest and, and let's send troops in and, you know, fire off some tear gas and, and do various things. And, you know, and let's go to Chicago, you know, on, uh, on Wednesday of this week and have a press conference, you know, about the great work we're doing with Operation Legend and all this kind of stuff. And so anyway, but I, the one thing I want to say is that I, I, you know, I, everything you've said, I agree with except one little point, And that is, I do think Trump needs Barr. 
I do think Trump, not only does Barr desperately need Trump, but Trump needs Barr. Um, because Barr has these powers and Barr is far, far smarter than, than, than Trump. And, and Barr needs to play this role. Trump has fired everybody worth a darn who, who, you know, who he ever had. And he did have a few people who were, you know, had some integrity. And Barr, Barr is kind of it. And so I think Trump needs him. He may not know he needs him, but he needs him. So it's really an unholy alliance that is working for the two of them and against the country. Um, you have cracked something that I haven't understood for a long time. We tag Donald Trump for his American carnage inaugural speech, right, uh, in, in 2017. Bill Barr, in effect, wrote the American Carnage speech decades ago. Uh, that's this is an amazing symbiosis you are describing right now. They both fully inhabit that world. But I, I want to turn, if I can, to the November election because I think you're right. I think I have been almost careless in saying, oh, this is just talk. This is just talk. But of course, this is not just talk when it comes to November. And and we're all seeing how something as simple, you know, the air we breathe, the post office can be deployed to interfere with or at least confuse this election. What's less clear, I think, to listeners is what Bill Barr could do. If Bill Barr, beyond making, I've now cited it several times, patently false claims about fraud and mail-in voting and foreign interference in mail-in voting. Okay, stipulated. He says things that are lies that I think undermines voter confidence in mail-in balloting. Beyond that, Donald Ayer, what do I have to worry about going into the November election if Bill Barr is, as you say, absolutely committed to Donald Trump's re-election? Well, I... You know, I'm, I hesitate to, you know, throw out extreme speculations. You know, I mean, there's every every manner of possibility, and I and I I don't I don't want to kind of go down the list of all the things that he might do. I guess what I would just say is that we know for a fact that he is not at all committed uh, to the ideal of a justice department that works only for the people that bends over backwards to be even handed and fair and would never consider, you know, acting for political reasons. Um, you know, I mean, this Federal Tort Claims Act intervention the other day is a great example of him using the litigation resources of the government in order to intervene, in order to protect Trump politically, you know, against a, a piece of litigation. So, I think he is fully prepared to use those resources for grossly political and improper reasons. And the question is, what opportunities may avail themselves as in connection with the election? And, you know, I haven't, in honesty, thought about the details of all of that. But the idea that he would send, you know, Department of Justice lawyers into court in settings related to an election whose ultimate resolution is of the issue who will be the president of the United States, it is not beyond the realm of possibility. And I, I, you know, I'd want to think hard about the given situation, but I don't think you can put anything past this guy. 
is the bottom line. And he's proving it every day by the things he does. You know, this is one of those very rare times when I'm hosting this show where I desperately wish I had a little pocket defibrillator um, under my desk because <laughs> I don't that I, I cannot let myself think about. Um, but I do want to ask you, because you said earlier, two attorneys general went to jail for Watergate. And one of the questions I have been asked all week about uh the Eugene Carroll intervention is, can there be consequences? Can there be any consequences either for Barr or for attorneys who sign pleadings? Uh, is there, I mean, I think there is a normative question about whether we want there to be consequences. And yeah. perhaps if Joe B Biden is elected, we just turn the page and move on. Well, I think, I mean, I think one, th one thing, um, I, there, there are, you know, bar association ethics rules and things like that. And you're, you know, and your listeners probably know that there have been, you know, serious complaints of ethical violations filed against bar for a bunch of the things that he has done. Um, you know, in general, uh, lawyers, certainly prosecutors acting within the scope of their employment have absolute immunity. Well, they have they have immunity. I'm not sure if they, it's absolute. Judges have absolute immunity. You know, lawyers have immunity. Uh, the idea that you go after the lawyers for the way they litigated a case is an extreme thing to think about, and and I would not, you know, want to go into that as as something. Gosh, we really should be thinking about. Um, I think the other the other question that's important and, and not easy is what, what ought to happen to President Trump after he's defeated, if he's defeated. And I think that's another set of issues that are challenging. There, there are all kinds of reasons people want to say, you know, forgive and forget, turn the page and move on. Um, and I have a lot of feelings along those lines. But I got to tell you, in my adult life or my whole life, I'm not aware of anything remotely comparable to the abuse of the justice system that these people have engaged in. Uh, I don't think anything remotely similar, systematically across the board, repeatedly in act after act after act, and then lying about it, lying about it constantly. You know, I, I have, I, I want to forgive and forget, but I have a little trouble forgiving some things. And, and I, you know, no one's asking me to make this decision. I guess I'm glad. Because I think someone ought to think long and hard before they figure out how these people should be treated. Yeah, and it, it brings us full circle to, to where I know you started, uh, which is thinking about post-Watergate reforms and how damage done to the Justice Department and to public confidence in the Attorney General and in an independent Justice Department, it doesn't just magically snap back, regardless of who is elected in 2020. It is hard fought. And it is, as you say, it is a culture. It is baked in and attorneys have to be trained up to think by triangulating against those values. And so I think it, it's a very, very fraught question how you restore that. And maybe we should just promise that we'll have you back on the show to talk about it uh, after the election. But before I let you go, I do have a question of nomenclature for you. Um, you keep talking about autocracy and I think you're very mindful uh, with your words. And so when you, I know you told uh, Politico a little while ago that, 
your, I think your word was alarmed, frankly, at the threat of autocracy and talked about what that would mean in a second term. Autocracy, tyranny, those kinds of words didn't used to be words that lawyers threw around. I, I certainly never used those words to describe the United States. Those were Masha Gessen words. Those are Tim Snyder words. When you talk about autocracy, what exactly do you mean? I, I guess I want you to unpack it and sure. I, tell me when you started using that word. Well, I, I I don't know quite when I started using that word, but it was it was around the time that I saw that there was this this systematic, uh, by which I mean, you know, in many different areas, effort to free the president from the limitations upon his use of power uh, that have always been sort of, you know, in, in the water we drink and the air we breathe, you know. And, you know, one of the very first things that started down that road with Bill Barr was, you know, when the president, not not liking the fact that Congress had declined to appropriate money for his border wall, declared an emergency, and then immediately said, this isn't really an emergency, I just want to do it quicker. And Barr's Justice Department went to court to defend his ability to do that. So what is that? That's the appropriations clause. The Constitution says that the Congress appropriates money. Congress repeatedly, explicitly refused to appropriate that money. And the president says, forget it, I'm just going to go ahead and do it anyway. So that's one one example of a, of a of a power being overridden. Then there's you know throughout 2019 there's this vast array of acts to stonewall um, efforts by the Congress to do oversight, to get information, to get documents, to talk to witnesses, even in connection with the impeachment. And and they basically just said, "Nah, we're not going to give it to you." And when they needed it, you know, they'd get an OLC opinion. They'd order up an OLC opinion that would say, "You don't have to do it." Some of those relied on opinions Bill Barr wrote back when he was the head of OLC in 1989 and 90. Um, uh, you, you know, so you, you've got you've got a lot of different things that are being done. Of course, another element of it is, well, we don't like the Mueller report, so we'll just override it. We'll just have Bill Barr go out front. Nobody's seen it yet. So he'll have a press conference or he'll write a letter and then he'll have a press conference and he'll say, you know, well, I've decided this issue of obstruction and there's no obstruction. So, so you know, negating and the findings, of course, of the report, when you look at it, are no, there's enormous evidence of obstruction. So Barr overrules that. You know, you've got the regular process of Inspector General Horowitz's investigation of uh, the Russian interference, uh, you know, crossfire hurricane investigation. He comes out in December of 2019 with a report uh, and, and it, you know, it does find some problems. It finds, you know, that, that a number of warrant applications were improperly prepared and it was, it was bad what some of, some of what was done. But he also found that the oversight of that investigation and, and the reasons for doing it, the, the, what they call the predication for that investigation was, was adequate, was totally fine. And there was no sign that the supervisors were biased in any way. Well, immediately Barr comes out, and, and and so did John Durham, amazingly, with a statement that says, "Oh, I don't agree with that. We don't. We and of course we're doing our own investigation, so we know what the facts are, and we don't think that's true. So you're negating the findings of usual and ordinary processes that people trust, 
And, uh, you know, they got the whole set of things about the inspectors general. You had five inspectors general fired, uh, one of whom, you know, was in connection with the whistleblower uh, complaint that that was ended up finally going to Congress, but not until OLC had written an opinion saying it didn't need to. So the list goes on and on and on. And what it amounts to is a systematic effort by this administration, I would say under the direction probably of Bill Barr, pretty much totally, to dismantle the checks and balances on the system. And and literally, you know, the president makes this statement periodically that his Article 2 gives him the power to do anything he wants. Those are his words. Well, he says that because Bill Barr has told him that. You know, that's what Bill Barr wrote in the memo, in his audition memo in June of 2018. He basically said the president is the executive branch and he can do whatever he wants, including he can dismiss an investigation of himself if he wants to. So anyway, it goes on and on and on. And when you eliminate virtually all the checks and balances on the president's power, what do you have left? You have an autocrat. I think what you're saying is that we have an idea about authoritarianism as something that is happening on the streets, what we saw in Lafayette Park, what we saw in Portland, people getting thrown into vans, that's authoritarianism. I think what you're saying adds another dimension, and it's a really important dimension. You're saying it's not just that. Authoritarianism is cumulative. Authoritarianism is an attitude. Authoritarianism can happen in the vaulted halls of main justice as readily as on the streets. And what you're telling me is even on that axis, it's happening all around us. I think so. I think so. And I think, you know, I think one one measure of it is the sense people feel, I feel it, I think you may feel it, a lot of other people feel it, that the craziness continues. One thing after another happens and, you know, you may speak out if you can, if you have a forum and a way to do it. But ultimately, you say, well, I can't do anything about that right now. You know, there's just nothing I can do about that. That's the way it is. That's what they do. It's completely wrong and completely outrageous. But this administration has the power right now to do that. And it's as outrageous as it is. None of us can do anything about it. Well, once that's institutionalized and we all accept that attitude, where you you are now living in an autocracy, um, and you know that's what they're working toward. And if if Trump is reelected, I'm not. I, I wish I could say I see a way that that isn't going to happen, uh, but I don't. Donald B. Ayer served as United States Attorney and Principal Deputy Solicitor General in the Reagan administration, and is. Deputy Attorney General under George H.W. Bush. I think in another universe someday, we will find that we could have a podcast together in which we actually disagree about a lot of things, but today was not one of them. Donald Ayer, thank you so very much. I think you have been a clarion voice for helping understand why the Justice Department is such a big part of this picture, and I cannot thank you enough for your time. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And that's a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. You can always keep in touch 
at amicus at slate.com. We love your letters. And you can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Gabriel Roth is editorial director. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer. And June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks. Until then, hang on in there. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.